You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 13. Having looked this morning at the parable of the tares and the explanation of that parable, we now turn our attention to the verses in between those two passages, verses 31 through 35, Matthew chapter 13. And we read beginning at verse 31. The Bible says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three seta of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. What a treasure you've put into our hands. What a privilege to have it, to read it, to study it. And what a weighty thing it is, Lord, to declare it. We are insufficient for this in ourselves, but we thank you for the sufficiency that is ours in Christ. And we pray that the preaching time tonight would be in demonstration of the Spirit's power at work in the proclaimer and at work in those who hear your word tonight. Your people are precious to you, God. They are the sheep of your pasture. They belong to you, blood-bought by the blood of Jesus. Lord, would you meet the needs of your people tonight as your word goes forth? Needs that we are aware of, needs that we are not yet aware of, but I thank you that your word meets needs not just as they appear to us in the present, but even, Lord, you are supplying for us for our future, things that we don't yet know that we're going to meet with. We also pray for those who hear me who don't know Jesus. We ask, Lord, for continued salvation. We thank you for the many people that we have seen come to you in recent days and the many testimonies we have heard from the baptistry. Lord, this is your work. We give you thanks. And we pray that you would continue to save and rejoice, Lord, to witness your great work in this world. So bless tonight, we ask, and we will be thankful for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 35 says, So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. You find this in Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus is declaring through parables mysteries concerning the kingdom of God. 
There were things that the people understood about the kingdom of God from the Old Testament Scriptures. There were things veiled in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now Jesus is bringing those things out. He is making these things plain. Most of this had to do with the fact that the Messiah will come more than once. The first time to save, the next time to judge. A separation in time, an age that would exist between His first coming and His second coming. And each of these parables explains something to us about the kingdom of God, its operation, its growth, its outcome in the age in which we are living. When Jesus made use of parables, He was taking from one world of reality and He was using these stories to illuminate another world of reality. Taking from what was material to illuminate what was spiritual. Taking from what was temporal to illuminate what will be eternal. Taking from the world of the seen to talk about things that are unseen. Taking from what people were very familiar with, well known to the people, a farmer sowing seed in his field, those sorts of things, and teaching them about things they did not yet know. And this is why the parables for the crowds were riddled. They were not able to understand what Jesus was saying. This was a form of judgment. But as we saw in verse 36, when the disciples would come to Jesus privately, He would explain the parables to His disciples. This, for them, was grace upon grace. Those who did not want to hear the clear declarations of Jesus were left with parables. Those who heeded His words and desired His words and hungered for the truth, they were given the explanation later on. What's interesting is that the, the two parables we look at tonight, there's no record in Scripture that they were ever explained. Jesus gives these parables. There's no explanation given associated with these two parables. But something I think is right for us to recognize is once Jesus began to explain the parables to His disciples, His method was being unlocked, so to speak, in their minds. Even if He didn't explain every parable He gave, as they began to hear His explanation for these parables, especially as they're all given in the same context, all having to do with the same subject, then even these parables that He did not go on to explain, they would have had an understanding of. They were discernible, the meaning of these parables. I think that's the case with these two parables we look at tonight. Even though there's no explanation given, I don't think there's any doubt as to what their main message is. Again, once we look at them in context, the meaning becomes discernible. Tonight we're going to look at these two parables together, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, because they really make the same basic point. In fact, I think they were meant to be taken together because they provide two angles, as it were, on the same basic point. The question they answer is, how will the kingdom of God fare during this age? How will the kingdom of God fare in this world? What will happen with the kingdom of heaven until the Messiah returns? Now, We've been given some insight into that already. We know that some people are going to receive the word of the kingdom. We saw three soils that do not, but one soil that does. And we saw that the people of God are going to be living alongside the sons of the evil one during this age. The separation 
awaits the end of the age. We saw that this morning. But what is it going to look like? Is it going to be something large, something small, something influential, something without influence? How will the kingdom of God fare until the Son of God returns to the earth? And what we see in these two parables is that the kingdom will grow until the Messiah returns. In fact, it's going to reach to the ends of the earth. And the kingdom is going to be influential. It is going to permeate life on this planet, make a difference. And then the way the two parables end, we're reminded that ultimately the kingdom of God triumphs. We know how the, how the thing ends. We, we know how it all turns out. That's what these two parables teach us, that eventually the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God when the Savior returns from heaven. Revelation 11.15 says that very thing. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was, were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Along with the other parables, these two parables declare that truth. Two very basic points tonight. These parables, as I said, I don't think are hard to understand. The truth is straightforward. It's basic. But these truths are important. And so two main points tonight. The parables examined and then the parables applied. The parables examined and then the parables applied. The first parable is the parable of the mustard seed. Verse 31, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the, the, the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? man takes a mustard seed, he sows it in his field. That seed grows into a very large plant that provides a place for the birds of the air to nest in its branches. From something very small to something very large. Now in that parable, there are two, two things Jesus says that the critics of the Bible have seized upon. These two things really bother the critics. They shouldn't bother you, but they bother the critics. One, they're bothered by the fact that Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Verse 32, and this is the smallest of all seeds. And they go, aha, it is not the smallest of all seeds. And either Jesus was ignorant of that fact or Jesus left people in their ignorance. Because the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. What they ignore, of course, is the context. Christ is talking about what a man sows in his field or what a man sows in his garden. And he's thinking specifically about that region of the world, the land of the Bible, the land of Israel. So what was sown in the fields by farmers in Israel for the consumption of food... This is what Jesus has in mind. In fact, he, he states the context. 
when he says in verse 32, and this is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree. So this is what he has in mind, seeds sown in the fields for the purpose of consumption. And we are told that he, of course, was right. This was the smallest of all those types of seeds. The second thing that he said that bothers the critics is when he says it becomes a tree. The critics argue that the mustard plant is not a tree. It's a plant. It's not a tree, they say. And they say it was not sturdy enough to have the birds nest in its branches. But again, if you hear our Lord in context, what he's saying is that in comparison with all the other plants in the garden, it is a tree. It is a very large thing compared to everything else that's growing in, in the field. Leon Morris commenting on the word translated tree, denodron is the word, he says it occurs in Matthew in 12 of its 25 occurrences. It is quite a Matthean word. It signifies a tree over against smaller growths. He says the point of the parable is that this very little seed grows into a sizable plant, one larger than all the plants of the garden, and indeed in its mature state becomes a tree. It can grow to a height of 8 to 12 feet. Other commentators make the point that during certain seasons its branches become rigid so that it could have supported birds nesting. I'll mention in just a moment, I think Jesus had something else in mind as well as he mentions the birds nesting in its branches. So our Lord is, is communicating in very clear terms, and he's not mistaken. I would also add, our Lord is communicating to people in, in, in normal terms. He's not giving a science lesson on the mustard plant. The other day I was, uh, now a few months ago, I was driving somewhere in my truck and as I'm driving I look over to my right and seated in my, at the top of my passenger seat was a frog. And by the way, it had, it had morphed into the color of that seat. Really interesting. I took a picture of it. It was beige. Tiny little thing. Took a picture of it, sent it to my granddaughter's. Our oldest grandchild, Brookie, I think she wants to be a veterinarian one day. And so I, I sent this picture. I said, look at this. Look at this, Brooke. Now, if I had said to any of my family members, I just saw the tiniest little frog, I don't think they would have said, aha, granddad. You are claiming you just saw the smallest frog in the whole world. No, they would understand what I was saying is this is a very little tiny frog. People communicate that way, don't we? We sometimes make a point by use of intentional exaggeration, hyperbole. The point Jesus is making is that in the mustard plant, you have something with very, very small beginnings. But afterward, it becomes very large, larger than any other plant in the field. And he says, this can be compared to the kingdom of heaven. That's the point he's making. The second parable, the parable of the leaven. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three seda of flour until it was all leaven. A woman takes zume is the word. 
fermented dough. She mixes it into three measures. Satan is the word. It was a Hebrew dry measure of about 13 liters. So three of those would be about 39 liters of flour, about 50 pounds would have produced enough bread to feed about 100 people. So it's a large mixture. And she takes some fermented dough and mixes it in with that. And the result is that the leaven permeated the mixture and eventually it is all leavened. The point of that comparison is that the yeast permeates the flour. Simple stories. Making a point about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to that. To a woman taking that dough, putting it in the, in the mixture, and before long the entire mixture is leavened. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to this. This is what he declared. Now, how are they meant to be understood? How are they meant to be applied? As I said, he doesn't offer the explanation, but I think in the context of what he's been teaching us, the meaning is quite apparent. The first parable, the one concerning the mustard seed, speaks of growth. A small seed is planted, the smallest of all seeds is planted, but the result is something large, larger than anything else in the field, larger than anything else in the garden. And so it will be with the kingdom of heaven. Small beginnings, but it's going to grow in such a way that you would never believe its largeness. It's going to grow in such a way that it reaches throughout the world. The proclamation of the gospel, the salvation of sinners. Talking about the kingdom now in its current state, in its spiritual state, where salvation has come. Talking about the formation of the family of God during this age, the gathering in of kingdom citizens. It's going to grow in a way that no one would have ever imagined. This is because of the authority of the Savior. I mean, Jesus declares it in, in veiled terms, in, in parabolic form, but He's going to declare the same truth in very clear terms later on. Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Before this is all over, before it's all wrapped up, this gospel will go to the ends of the earth. It's going to reach the nations. As I said, this is because of His authority. Matthew 28.18 says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I mean, even as he's commissioning his disciples, a commission that, that comes down to us tonight, the whole world is in view. All authority in heaven, on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold... I'm with you always to the end of the age. Isn't it a glorious thing to know? We don't do our work apart from Jesus. He's with us. We do what we do by His authority. We do what we do with His presence. 
He's with us. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in us. We are a living temple. And through the church, this gospel, this good news of the kingdom is disseminated. Daniel 7, looking to the kingdom of the Messiah, looking forward to the the breadth of its authority, in the 14th verse says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It is going to be everlasting, and it is going to encompass the entire earth. Such is the kingdom of heaven. A small beginning but that grows into something unimaginably large. I'll talk more about it in a moment, but just think about those small beginnings. Think about the men hearing Jesus say these words. Twelve disciples, one wasn't genuine. And those eleven common men are going to be the foundation of the Lord's church. These words are being spoken in this little tiny area of the world. And Jesus says it's going to This message is going to reach the whole world. The second parable, the parable of the leaven, also speaks, I guess you could say, of a kind of growth, but it's really more permeation than growth. D.A. Carson made that point. He said, if there's a distinction between this parable and the last one, it is that the mustard seed suggests extensive growth and the yeast intensive transformation. The yeast doesn't grow, it permeates. And its inevitable effect, despite the small quantity used, once again, the influence is small at the beginning, but the influence becomes large, it permeates the whole thing. Carson says, despite the small quantity used, it recalls Jesus' words in chapter 5, verse 13. In both parables it is clear that at present, the kingdom of heaven operates not apocalyptically, but quietly and from small beginnings. At this stage, what God has planned to do with salvation, it's not through some grand series of events, but in the quietness of the faithfulness of God's people, having believed it, having themselves been transformed by it, taking that message and sharing it in their world, that the message is going to reach the world so that we can say it's not only going to go places, it's going to change places. It's not just going to reach the world, it's going to influence the world, change the world, change lives, as a result, change places. The first parable says the world is going to meet with the gospel. The second parable says the world's going to be influenced by that advancement. And wherever it grows, wherever it influences, it brings blessings. That's why in the parable of the mustard seed, he speaks not only of it growing into the largest of the garden plants, he says this, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And this would take the hearers back to the Old Testament Scriptures. Because the same kind of language is used to describe kingdom strength 
and kingdom blessing, kingdom enrichment. When the Lord used Daniel to explain visions to Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. Nebuchadnezzar giving voice to what was going on in his mind. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. So, so not just its size, but its enrichment of wherever it, it extended. Its fruit was abundant. It provided food for every, everyone. He says, the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And when these visions are explained in the 20th verse, the Bible says, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. This describes your kingdom in its strength and in its power to enrich. Well, something greater than Nebuchadnezzar is being described in our Lord's parable. And so the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is presented in its strength and in its blessing to the world by this description. The birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The same kind of language was used when Egypt is being warned through Ezekiel, being warned of the judgment of God and, and held up as an example that nations fall. Ezekiel communicates about Assyria and about its former glory. Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 3, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high, Above all the trees of the field, its, its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. And under its shadow lived all great nations. Same kind of descriptive language. Its height, its largeness, and then its branches that provided blessing everything and everyone around it. John MacArthur commenting on the parable made this point, when Christians live in obedience to the Lord, they are a blessing to those around them. Individual believers become the source of benediction to nations. And with all their faults, those nations of the world who've been so influenced and who have recognized God's sovereignty and have sought to build their laws and standards of living on His Word, have proved a blessing to the rest of the world in economic, legal, cultural, and social ways, as well as spiritual and moral. And just pause. What MacArthur is saying is right on. He's saying wherever 
The kingdom of God has spread through the preaching of the gospel to the, to the degree that it actually influenced the nations in which it has advanced. Those nations have been not only blessed, they've been a blessing. And we don't have to be taught about that, do we? Because we live in a nation formed through the influence of the gospel. And for 200 plus years has been blessed as a result and has been a blessing in many ways as a result. In fact, this is one of the great griefs of Christians living in this nation is when you see this nation turn its back on the very God and on the very gospel that has made it what it is. What a sad thing that is. But this is what our Lord is speaking of. Wherever the kingdom advances, there, there's blessing associated with it. MacArthur goes on to say, it is from the teachings of Scripture through Christian witness that high standards of education, justice, the dignity of women, the rights of children, prison reform, and countless other such social benefits have come. Whenever the gospel of the kingdom of God is faithfully preached and practiced, all the world benefits. Jesus' point is that in spite of great opposition, represented by the three bad soils and the tares, His kingdom will start small and spread in power and influence to become victorious. Close quote. As Proverbs 14.34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And I know you do, but I ask you to join with me in praying for our nation. May the Lord have mercy upon us. May the Lord pour out a great awakening upon us. What a tragic, sad thing it is to see how we've begun and to see where we are. As MacArthur notes how in this nation there's been the advancement of compassion and care, rights respected with respect to women and children, and now we're living in a nation preying upon its children, destroying its children, sacrificing its children for temporal treasure that is in fact trash, trading treasure for trash. May God have mercy upon us because where the gospel advances and where it's received and lives in those who receive it, blessing is associated with it. So that in these two parables, the ultimate triumph of the kingdom is pictured. Now we saw this this morning, when this great day of separation we know is coming, and Jesus is going to return from heaven with the holy angels, and the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one are going to be separated, and the sons of the kingdom will shine like the sun in its full strength. We heard that this morning. But even in these two parables, you see that implied because the mustard plant grows large and provides blessing, and the leaven leavens the whole lump. Both of these parables end with success. Both of these parables end with the small beginning having a great influence and points us to the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven. What do we learn from this? What do we walk away with as we think about these two parables? Briefly, let me mention three things. First of all, my, my mind goes to the faithfulness of the words of Christ. I mentioned this earlier, but let me underscore it. I want you to remember when these words were spoken. I want you to remember where they are spoken, the circumstances within which they are spoken. Jesus, from the human 
point of view is a carpenter's son. That's all he is. This is how the world regards him. We know who he truly is. We know he was God incarnate. We know that he is the son of God on earth as much as he was in heaven. He just took to himself an additional nature, a human nature, to provide salvation for his people, to live for us and die for us and be raised for us. Now to intercede for us and to return for us. But from the vantage point of the world, he was just a carpenter's son, just a common man. In fact, this is how they wondered over him in Nazareth. We, we know this man. We know his, his father, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. We, we know him. And his followers are a, are a ragtag group, aren't they? Common people. I mean, made up, in some cases, of notorious sinners. One of them, at least, a tax collector. And when you expand beyond the 11 and you think about the group following Jesus around, I mean, you're talking about saved prostitutes, and you're talking about common people like fishermen, even, even among the 11. This is just a, a very ordinary group of people. And at this time, he's opposed not just by the religious leaders of his own nation, but remember, the religious leaders of his nation are subjugated to Rome. So when you think about this message, this movement, becoming worldwide, influencing, permeating the world with a carpenter's son and a ragtag group of followers, in a world that is absolutely opposed to you, your own people are opposed to you, and they're subjugated to the, to the power of the earth in Rome. A polytheistic religious system belonged to that nation, and they were not going to be friendly to the Lord Jesus. I mean, when Jesus stands before Pilate, Pilate says, what is truth? If you were a betting person, and you better not be, what were the odds that this was going to reach the whole earth? And not just reach it, change it. What are the odds? But now ask yourself, was Jesus right? Has it happened? We know it's happened. The strongest critics of the Bible can't deny that it's happened. I want to encourage you, believer, one of the ways you know you're in the truth is take the most unbelievable parts of Scripture and then pay attention as to how they've been fulfilled, how they've been proven true. For 2,000 years, Christianity has been attacked. For 2,000 years, the Bible has been attacked. For 2,000 years, the haters of Christ and of the church have mocked the Christian faith, have predicted the snuffing out of the Christian faith, have attempted the snuffing out of the Christian faith. In fact, there have been places and times in history where Christianity was declared to be dead. And here we sit in a room full of people who love Jesus Christ. And we have brothers and sisters all over this planet. The kingdom advances just like Jesus said that it would. The kingdom has grown just like Jesus said that it would. The kingdom has influenced the world just like Jesus said that it would. And the greatest blessing provided in Christianity is its people. If you travel at all and you go anywhere else in the world and you meet with your brothers and sisters in other places, 
Not only will you meet with the sweetness of fellowship that you know in this church, you're going to meet with an immediate sweet fellowship with people whom you've never met, but you share the same eternal life. And God's people are the most glorious people on the planet, the most selfless, sacrificial, genuine, loyal, loving people on the face of the earth. And so you can talk about legal reform and all those sorts of things that were mentioned in the quote that I read earlier, but the greatest blessing of all is what God produces in lives that He redeems. So I think about the faithfulness of the words of Christ. Who would have believed it when He spoke these parables? But it has come to pass. The second thing I think about is the foolishness of God's means. How would it come to pass? How would it spread to the ends of the earth? How would it permeate a world full of the devil's work? How does it survive? How does it thrive? How does it influence in a world like that? The answer is the message being distributed, disseminated by you and me. Common people, the people who've been redeemed in response to it. The people whom Jesus has saved, the good sower, Sowing good seed in the field, which is the world, and the good seed is you. And by means of that work that He has done, the kingdom would grow from this very small beginning to reach the whole earth, and it would influence the whole world. God has been pleased through the foolishness of preaching, and not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty. This is how He's done it. Common, everyday, foolish, in the, in the sight of the world. Foolish means. We would have thought he would have used celebrities. And there have been celebrities saved, but the church hasn't advanced because of celebrity. It is the Spirit of God working through the power of the Word of God as it is housed and then given forth in the lives of the men and women whom God has saved. This is how the kingdom has grown. And dear church, this is why we must always be wise enough to, to simply rest in God's foolish means. What will we do until Jesus comes? We will pray. We will preach. We will believe it. We will live it. We will love one another. And we will love the world as evangelists. This is what we will do until Jesus comes. And He will be pleased to work through that because these are the means that He has chosen to turn the world upside down. Isn't this what was said in the very beginning? These men have turned the world upside down. They've come here also, and they've turned the world upside down. With what? With a message. And the reason why it turned the world upside down is because the message is true. And because God is at work in and through it, changing lives. The faithfulness of Christ's words, the foolishness of God's means. Last thought, the flourishing of God's work. I playfully mentioned it this morning when I talked about you know, knowing how a game ends and watching the rerun of it and knowing that when your team is behind in the second quarter by 21 points, but you know they won the game, you're at rest because you know how it ends. And you can't take an analogy and stretch it too far. It will fail eventually. But what I would say to you is this. We preach the gospel with the confidence that everyone for whom Jesus died will be saved. He will not lose one. 
that his precious blood was shed for. Not one. I mean, you've got a task that's been assigned to us that has a certain outcome. Now, we're going to give an account for how faithful we've been to the work assigned to us. But there should be no doubt among us that the gospel will prove victorious in this world. Doesn't that give you confidence? I mean, it might be that you share the gospel and you meet with one of those three soils that rejects the message. But even if it should please God that for the rest of your life, your only task is to sow the seed that is eventually rejected, there is someone out there who's going to sow the seed and it's going to meet with good soil. And it's going to take root. And the result's going to be lasting fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. You, are, you can be absolutely certain that as the gospel goes forth, people will be saved until Jesus comes. And we don't get wrapped up in who sows and who waters and who reaps. Because the one who saves is singular. And it's not any of us. It's God. So if our task is to sow, hallelujah. If our task is to water, hallelujah. And if it's our privilege to reap, hallelujah. But all praise and all glory and all honor belongs to Jesus Christ, the one who saves. What do we know about the kingdom? What is Jesus revealing as he opens his mouth in parables, uttering things hidden since the foundation of the world? Between the time of the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah, the kingdom is going to advance through the preaching of a message that is largely going to meet with rejection, but some will be saved. It's going to meet with good soil. And those who are saved are going to live their lives right in the midst of the sons of the evil one. But God's work will not be thwarted. It will not in any way be hindered by that reality. In fact, it is going to grow to such an extent that it reaches the whole world. And wherever it grows, it will permeate that world. There will be changed lives, changed places because of the power of the gospel, because of the saving power of Christ, because of the advancement of this kingdom. And you don't just belong to it. You have the privilege to serve it, to serve on behalf of it. Isn't God's grace marvelous? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for what you have done and what you are doing, for the confidence and the comfort and the encouragement that we have when we look at what our Savior tells us with all certainty will happen during this age and where it's all going to end, what the final result is going to be. Lord, would you fill your people this night with joy in believing your word, knowing the faithfulness of your words, knowing that you're pleased with, with using us, which to ourselves and to the world seems like a foolish means, but Lord, you are pleased to use us as we proclaim a message that this world counts to be foolishness. In that way, your work will flourish and people will be saved and your kingdom will advance until the king returns for his people. Even so, quickly come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.